Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Trisha Bobita. And I am Greta Johnson. And this week's guest is Kurt Anderson. He hosts a radio show called Studio 360, and he is an author. His new book is called Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, A 500-Year History. Which is extra fun because when you write it out like this, Trisha, there are two colons in there. Fantasyland colon, How America Went Haywire colon, 500-Year History colon. Uh-huh. Well, Wait, <laughs> now there's one. Period. Period. <laughs> Period. I like that you put an extra one in at the end. That's it's like when exciting. you're spelling banana out loud, it just gets out of hand. <laughs> Will you spell banana out loud? B A N A N A N A N A. I hear you. I hear you. B A N A N A N A. But here's the thing Kurt's book is all about the things that we as Americans, as fiercely independent Americans, sometimes insist on believing, even if there isn't empirical, factual evidence to back us up. Mm hmm. I have things that I believe that are probably not true. Yeah, tell me yours. What do you got? So I (laughs) think that this should still be true, but people who know things about science and physics tell me that this is dumb. Mm. But I think that tornadoes should get faster when they go down hills. Oh, wow. Do you think that's true? That's really interesting. It's a really dumb thing, but that I've thought since I was a kid and was like, well, why wouldn't they? I get faster when I run down a hill. But a tornado isn't running. It's not really. It doesn't have feet or sneakers on. Now I'm starting to realize that this is, in fact, not a thing. But I'm an American, so I get to believe this if I want to. I guess so, man. I'm I'm not going to argue with you about it. Do you have any things, Greta, that you believe that you maybe ought not believe? I do, but I think you're going to try and talk me out of it, and that's going to be very upsetting to me. What is yours? Because I really do think that corgis are a superior breed of dog. In what rubric? Oh, and every, like, they just are perfect. No, but what makes them adorable and entertaining is that they're not the perfect dog. Their legs are far too short. Yeah, they can still function. It's not like they have problems because their legs are short. I mean, they scrappily find ways around the problems that their short legs <laughs> No, man, they incur. can hustle. They are the best dog. All right. That feels like the kind <laughs> of fervored opinion that makes America great. Yeah, I could see that if you put applied that in a certain direction, it might be problematic. For yeah, sure. and that's what Kurt <laughs> takes us through. 500 years of Americans being very sure for very <laughs> few reasons. Kurt is also obsessed with maps. So we're bringing in a geographical expert to help explain how maps tell their own stories and to encourage us to get lost every once in a while. Kurt Anderson, welcome to Nerdette. Thanks for having me. So some people think that maybe America has recently gone crazy, yeah. but your argument is that we've always been crazy. Well, my argument is that the, the iffiness about factual reality, it's always been there. And it's always been in balance with the, the things that tamp it down, the things that keep us 
on track, uh, experts who actually know things, a scholarship that actually means something, science that actually tells you a version, and in my view, a really important version of the truth. And in the last few years and decades, our kind of American habit for truthiness, to coin a phrase, and the American habit for believing whatever you want because you feel it's true has gotten a little bit out of control. And so, yeah, the Trump administration and Donald Trump did not create this. He and they just exploited an overripe part of the American character to uh, take over the government. You mentioned truthiness, and early on in the book, you talk about that phrase being introduced by Stephen Colbert on his old show, on his satirical show on Comedy Central. And we actually have a clip of him introducing that word, and let's just take a listen to that. And that brings us to tonight's word. Truthiness. (laughs) Now, I'm sure some of the word police, the wordinistas over at Webster's, are going to say, hey, that's not a word. Well, anybody who knows me know that I'm no fan of dictionaries or reference books. They're elitist, constantly telling us what did or didn't happen. Who's Britannica to tell me the Panama Canal was finished in 1914? If I want to say it happened in 1941, that's my right. I don't trust books. They're all fact, no heart. And that's exactly what's pulling our country apart today. Because face it, folks, we are a divided nation. Not between conservatives and liberals or tops and bottoms, no. (laughs) We are divided between those who think with their head and those who know with their heart. Because that's where the truth comes from, ladies and gentlemen. The gut. The gut. Very first episode of The Colbert Report, actually. Yeah. And that's 2006, right? So that's about, what, 10, 11 years ago now that he came onto the scene and knew that that was something to skewer because it was already so percolating the culture. Right. I mean, one of the reasons I fell in love with Stephen Colbert as soon as he started his show and before when he was on The Daily Show before was was that, was that that persona was all about like, hey, I can believe whatever I want. As you say, once that was a, a joke that people responded to and before it was a joke running our government. You mentioned in the book that this goes all the way back to our our founding. So it's fun to read about and sort of poke fun at and prod at the Puritans and all sorts of folks from the very earliest days of our history. But I think some of the most clear-cut comparisons to this moment and the past you draw between now and the 60s and what was going on in the 1960s. Why do you think that is? What was the connection there? The 60s have been branded, uh, canonized as a certain kind of, oh, it was great. And it was great, of course, because the civil rights movement was great. And it was fun because rock and roll and and drugs, within reason, were fun. But it was also the time that do your own thing, have your own reality, find your own truth. Yeah, man. Exactly. We're all (laughs) things. And that sounds great as long as people found truths that didn't harm the rest of us. And it became part of our American mental operating system that – Your own truth was valid because it was yours. And that was a problem after a while. And uh, along with that Internet thing became a way that everybody could really have their own truth with their own silos that reinforced their own version of reality. Yeah, your book made me realize that a lot of the rhetoric, like you're saying, of the 60s, that find your own truth is exactly the kind of thing I was hearing from folks who were saying, that their white supremacy, for example, is their truth and their reality. And in a tolerant society, if you tolerate everything, 
the tolerance paradox, right, is that you then are you tolerating intolerance? And we've kind of created a strange paradoxical loop, perhaps, in our effort to say everyone can do their own thing and have their own way. Perfectly said. Sometimes those get in the way of each other. Well, and no, and people have said before about the Constitution, is it a, it's not a suicide pact, one justice famously said once. And this extreme tolerance, this kind of epistemological free fire zone that we've created gets to a place where it is, whether it's the white supremacist alternate reality or the, you know, Alex Jones alternate reality, and those aren't the same, and obviously, but they overlap. They start saying, well, the, the mainstream media, the elite media, they're just living in an alternate reality. So here we are, where I'm just trying to say, no, there is an empirical reality. There is a, a set of realities that until recently we've all regard, agreed to regard as reality. And then we can disagree about, okay, there is climate change. Let's violently disagree about how to deal with global warming and climate change and have our own political views of, oh, we should do this or we should or shouldn't endeavor to reduce our CO2 emissions. But let's not start saying, nope, it's not happening. And nope, human beings aren't doing it. That's a problem. And that is just one example of the have-your-own-facts madness that fantasy lands about. This book doesn't just talk about people's political or religious beliefs and how they may or may not be contributing to this culture of a fantasy land. But you take nerds to task. And I it rung true with me yeah. as someone who, I'll tell you, Kurt, I, in the last month, have on three separate occasions been dressed up as various characters at various events. Uh -oh. You cosplayer, you. Yes. Um, yeah, no, and again, I'm not saying that people who dress up as fantastical fictional characters because it's fun are necessarily going to be the people who have 28 AR-15 semi-automatic weapons and that it's all the same. But, but... This make-believe-y world that makes all truth and reality and nonfiction and fiction fungible, it's something to look at. And, and yes, and I feel busted, too, as I look at my own embrace of various New Age nostrums and mindfulness meditation. I, I bust myself. I mean, we are, we are all part of this American world where the lines between fantasy and reality have gotten very, very blurry. And some of them are benign, like, say, you dressing up as whomever you were dressing up <laughs> these last weeks. But, but once, once you step back and see it as all part of a, a fantasy land, you begin seeing that the benign parts can be enablers of the toxic parts, of the not-so-benign parts. What is it about Americans that makes us particularly susceptible to this? Well, a bunch of things. I mean, we, we created this country out of scratch, like writing a novel, like writing a play. It was a blank slate. The fact that a big part of the white founders of America were an extreme bunch of uh, religious zealots whose Protestant religious zealotry was all about saying, you're not the boss of me and I can believe whatever I want and I can take the Bible and make of it whatever I will. Those founding aspects of the American character led us to be different than the rest of what became known as the developed world. And this, the, the sheer size of America has allowed us also to indulge our extreme individualism because if, if we don't like where we are, we can go and make up a new colony or a new town or a new place where we can gather together people who either allow us to believe our, 
the th- wacky things we believe or where uh, nobody will mind if we pursue our wacky beliefs. So the size of— And now the internet has meant that if you felt alone in your wacky beliefs, you've got your tribe. You can find them quickly. Yes, and recruit more and create your alternate reality that looks real, for as real as any reality ever has. And so— um, No, there are lots of things about the American character and the American experience that are great, but when carried too far, when taken to the extreme, when not moderated by prudence and expertise and all the things that, again, Americans have always tended to reject. Why? I don't need you, Mr. Expert. I can figure it out on my own. And as you say, when uh, that kind of alternate reality tribalism is enabled to an unimaginable, (laughs) previously unimagined degree by the Internet, it becomes tough for any gatekeeper of any kind to say, hey, hey, hold on. That's not true because, no, look, all these people say it is true. I mean, the president has said that very thing about some of the large falsehoods that he has proposed about, for instance, several million illegal voters who didn't vote for him in the last presidential election when asked by journalists, but that's not true. And his response is, no, but a lot of people believe it just like I do, as though reality itself is a majority rules thing. That's where we are. And that is the problematic part of what I'm talking about. I mean, we can all have fun at Comic-Con or at Burning Man or at whatever version of reality we want in our in our churches. Fine, fine. But once reality itself is being defined by virtue of whatever the most people agree it is, that's tough. That's rough. Just around the corner, Kurt tells us why he loves maps so much. I just found the way in which that information could be presented geographically, cartographically. I was just instantly drawn to it. You're listening to Nerdette. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. All right, we're going to talk with Kurt about his obsession with maps, but we need someone who knows a thing or two about them to help us in this conversation. We have Ann Knowles on the line. She teaches at the University of Maine. She's a historical geographer. Ann, welcome to Nerdette. Hi, glad to be here. Hi, Ann. I'm I'm delighted to meet an historical geographer. I, you know, if I had one career I could have had that uh, isn't the one I have, a geographer of some kind would have been it. It's never too late, Kurt. Welcome to the club. <laughs> Thank you. So, Kurt, we brought Anne here because you told us you're obsessed with maps. What's the deal? Uh, I, I do love maps. Once I discovered maps, I, I just I never stopped loving them. And of course, in the GPS uh, era, uh, 
it becomes a problem because, of course, I, I stare at my GPS rather than actually experiencing the world sometimes. But no, I, I of course, find, I find uh, all kinds of cartography uh, interesting. I, 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 once I can plot information on a map, I, I suddenly feel as though I understand things better than I did before. Uh, so tell me, you're a professional map nerd, so tell me, <laughs> tell me how you got there. Well, I had a eureka moment in my life when I was about 28 years old. I met an historical geographer who was designing maps for a history textbook that I was editing. And I just fell in love instantly because maps explained history to me. Uh And then maps explained the world to me. And I started seeing the world as a constantly unfolding map in front of my eyes. Since then, it was a sort of uh, zeal of the convert experience for me. But for you, it started when you were little. Were you one of those kids who lay on the floor of the living room poring over the atlas? I was exactly one of those kids. And and the world book encyclopedias that my parents had in our house, I just found the way in which that information could be presented geographically, cartographically – I was just instantly drawn to it. So, yeah, I didn't – by the time I was 28, uh, that was way, way past my – whatever my eureka moment was, was uh, much younger than that. Yeah, I I loved atlases and and I loved – and again, my parents took us on family vacations all over uh, the United States. Uh, But I I was the navigator as soon as I could speak, I guess. And and I was the the kid in the backseat who just loved looking at the map as we were driving along through Montana and South Dakota and through Canada and all over the place. Yeah, exactly. I understand that you have a special love of historical maps, Kurt. Is that right? I do. I do. I always have. And whenever I go to flea markets, uh, I, I, you know, I basically say, bye, kids, bye, my wife, Anne, and and I'm going to go, as they already know, they don't need to be told. But no, I go to, I go to look at old maps. I also, some years ago, a decade ago or so, I I wrote a novel set in the 19th century and, and was able to completely indulge my love of old maps. It was Part of it was set in Paris in 1848 during the revolutions there. And so I was able to then to to buy old maps from the 1830s and 40s so I could trace my characters through the Paris of that time as it existed. And and, uh, so, yeah, I was able to then to actually use my map love as more than a hobby. Kurt, I love that you did that with your novel research because my favorite map that I have, I am a much more amateur map geek than the two of you. But my favorite map is a 1939 map of New York City that was my father's, and he was born in 1930. So I look at that map and imagine what it was like as a incorrigible nine-year-old to travel that city. And I like to look at that map and think about the stories he used to tell about, you know, getting to a Yankee game and all the things he did in the city and the ways he would ride the subway. I feel like maps can put you back in time when you're looking at them. Absolutely. Totally. One of my nerd obsessions is time travel and, and, and dreaming of and thinking about other times and wishing I could travel other times and having these old maps, in that case, a map of Paris in the 1830s or 40s. But now that I've lived in New York for most of my life, uh, I, I, am a, I am a total sucker for any old map of New York City. And it is absolutely enables my wish to imagine what other times were like completely. Are you familiar with GIS technology? Uh, Maybe, but tell me about it, because not enough to know what it is. G- 
GIS is often confused with GPS, which you've already mentioned, what we have in our cars and our phones and so forth. But GIS stands for Geographic Information Systems. It's a really a kind of software. There are lots of different brands that people use to map information that has geographic location attached to it. Uh-huh. And one of the really cool things you can do with GIS is scan a bunch of historical maps of the same place, like Manhattan, get them all into the same, we call it a projection, the same location on the Earth, and then use transparency to show one date after another to see how Times Square changed over 150 years. It is is so cool. You can also do it more simply on Google Earth. Uh Uh-huh which helps you geo-reference a scanned map uh, really quickly. But GIS is kind of the expert approach to it, and it's beginning to crop up more and more online. It shows change over time in a way that really makes intuitive sense to people, just like you've been talking about. In, in, and it, essentially, it's a kind of digital animation of a particular time. I can see how the racial or economic or other kinds of uh, uh, nature of, of where I am or the place I'm going to look at changed over time. Precisely. Wow. So that's I, I got to get me some GIS. <laughs> <laughs> Let me know if you're interested. I'll hook you up. So okay. maybe that's Thank how you. technology is changing the game for map geeks. Because I wonder, you know, if we if we miss it all having that big foldable map in the back seat because we have the GPS hooked to the dash in the front. But it sounds like maybe for what we've lost, we've also gained something because of technology when it comes to mapping. Yeah, I see more and more people combining old maps with this technology. So you do get to indulge in the beauty and the excitement and, and the sort of mystery of the old map, but then you can do more things with it. I wonder for the both of you as map connoisseurs, what's the most lost you've ever been? What a great question. I, it is a great question, and, and maybe this connects doctor, to my uh, problem, my, my need for maps, because I have a terrible, terrible natural sense of direction. I, 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 my natural default is to become lost. Uh, so the most seriously lost, uh, it would be, you know, driving, uh, actually it was with, in the GPS age, so you'd think, oh, that, that, that won't be possible. But I, I trusted Google Maps so much uh, when we were, my wife and I were in Italy a few years ago, that we ended up getting no. I said this is still a road. It's still it's still here. It's it's on the GPS, and it just took us to the middle of this vast vast field and ended, <laughs> even though on the GPS it said as though this little track was continuing. And at that point, I wasn't that lost, uh, but but I felt lost. And then suddenly we lost cell service. So then I was com- oh entirely lost uh, by 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 letting this um, perfect modern electronic map. Take me into the middle of nowhere, literally the middle of nowhere. At least you didn't do what happened to Michael Scott early on in the office where he drove into the lake because the GPS told him to. The field is a little less intense. You were drier, at least. I I thought of that episode as it happened to me. And it was, by the way, it was the middle of night, too. So that that added to the sense of of lostness. (laughs) Anne, how about you? Well, I've been lost many times. Uh, I grew up as a a sometime dancer and learned the sort of catchphrase that dancers always stumble. 
and I think geographers always get lost, but for us, that's a good thing. I actually like getting lost because then I have to start really observing where I am and use my wits and talk with people. So some of my best geographical field excursions, uh, like in a place called Mott Chunk, now Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, were when I didn't know where I was and I had to start chatting people up. And I spent the whole day learning about that place on people's doorsteps, in garage uh, repair shops, restaurants. And by the time I left, I had what felt like a very complete mental picture of the place and its people and its problems. So I think our obsession, many people's obsession with knowing exactly where they are at all times is actually denying them the kind of awareness that makes places interesting. So I don't like GPS. I don't have one. I may never have one. Wow. Beautifully said and amazing. And and as I was hearing you say that so beautifully and wishing I could be as as wandering and, and communicative with strangers as you are, I'm afraid that one of the, perhaps one of the reasons I like maps so much is is because it's a way in which I am gender stereotypical is I hate asking for directions. So <laughs> as much as I would love to have make these experience and meet these strangers in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, I, I'm I, I would be terrified and I and I would have to get on GPS immediately. <laughs> it is a gender thing for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Coming up after the break, we have some podcasty homework from Kurt Anderson. You're listening to Nerdette. This is still Nerdette. Still Nerdette. In case you, were case you forgot. Can I recommend another podcast? Would that be wrong? Absolutely. A podcast would be great for a podcast listener. Uh, well, I find uh, Ezra Klein's show, the Ezra Klein show, uh, incredibly interesting. I, I've just, I've only begun listening to it the last several months, and it is, I am completely addicted and devoted. It's, it's, usually more than an hour long. Uh, it's one conversation with a person for that time. And he is so incredibly well-prepared, uh, a sort of power nerd, wonk, I guess, is the term of art uh, that Washington people like him prefer. But it's a terrific show, and I and I learn much every time, every week. That's excellent homework. Kurt Anderson, thank you so much for joining us on Nerdette. It's been a total pleasure. I, I really appreciate it. Kurt Anderson is the host of the radio show Studio 360, and his new book is called Fantasyland. Check it out. This show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson, along with Justin Bull and Candice Mattel. Our executive producer is Joel Meyer, and our intern is B. Aldrich. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on NPR One, or listen in the WBEZ app. You know what else is super helpful is if you leave us a nice review in Apple Podcasts. Many thanks to KMBOTT83 for the very nice review. Kumbat. Whoa, that kind of sounded like mbop the way you did that. Was that on purpose? Yeah. <laughs> You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We are at Nerdette Podcast. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer Podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max 
and listen to the Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.